0: If the mysterious lawnmowers make you go, hmm, then a strange man in the Courtney's backyard really ought to make you go, are you fucking serious? From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Investigating the case of the murders of Lloyd and Agnes Courtney is proving to be one of the most difficult tasks that I've ever undertaken. At first, the complexities seem to derive from the chaotic crime scene. But as I'm moving along, I'm discovering that the crime scene is not the issue. The problem is, like in any case, the crime scene is a puzzle, and it's our job to put the pieces together. No matter how complicated a scene appears to be, when we break it down piece by piece, the picture always becomes clear. But what I'm realizing now is that the Courtney's crime scene is a puzzle that's missing pieces. Last week, I promised that we will dig into the forensics in this episode in hopes that the noticeable gaps will be filled in. Unfortunately, as I was researching trial transcripts, the DA's file, the police file, I came to the disappointing realization that the Fort Worth Police Department approached this case with blinders on. And that may have led to Agnes and Lloyd's killer walking free. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You are up at four, baking pastries at five, and open at six. 100th cappuccino by eight, 200th customer by nine, and there's still 12 hours to go. That's why you need a business broadband that works as hard as you do. Introducing Sky Business. With 4G internet backup and our stay connected guarantee, that's better business. To find out more, visit skybusiness.com. Sky Fiber only, 30-second 4G activation or one-off credit. New customers, Pro Plus packs only, T's and C's apply. In order to properly investigate any case, near the top of an investigator's to-do list should always be a timeline. The concept is simple. The first step in narrowing the suspect pool is to figure out who has an alibi. But you can't do that until you know when the crime was committed. While this seems elementary, in this case, no one seemed to put any effort at all into figuring out what time these murders actually occurred. Not the police, Not the prosecution, not even the defense. Dr. Pirwani was never asked by either side at trial about time of death. No one seemed to care. The state was fully relying on the DNA testimony that we're going to discuss today, and the defense was relying on planning doubt in the jurors' minds with an alternate suspect, which we're also going to discuss today. Last week, I looked a little deeper into the autopsies and discovered the partially digested bananas in Lloyd's stomach. I was able to use that information, along with the fact that Agnes' stomach contents were empty, to theorize that the time of death was likely much closer to lunchtime than breakfast time. My hope was that this week, I would find a clear photo or some documentation about the grocery receipt found on the floor of the kitchen to help narrow down our timeline. The receipt would offer us a few details that we could use. Number one, it would show exactly what time Agnes checked out from the market that day. And number two, it would show us how many pounds of bananas were purchased. That bit could be important because although we don't know exactly how heavy the bunch of bananas found on the floor were, we could recreate that bunch and likely determine the approximate weight. That then would also help narrow down the timeline. If we know for a fact that Lloyd ate one of those bananas, then we would also know if he was still alive when Agnes got home. But unfortunately, after hours and hours of searching, it seems as though no photo and no information about the receipt exists anywhere in the files that I've been provided. This is not the only missing piece to the timeline puzzle. We also don't know what time Lloyd was actually supposed to report for work that day. All we have to confirm his timeline is a neighbor who told police that they usually see him leave the house at 1 p.m., which is hardly reliable. Based on what we've seen in the TV episodes about the case, it seems that Lloyd's co-workers asked police to check on him around 5:30 p.m. Would they wait four hours after he didn't show up to be that concerned? I'd love to know the answer to that question, but unfortunately, that answer is not found anywhere in the police files. So, in reality, We don't actually know what time Lloyd was supposed to be at work on the day that he was killed. This is what we actually know about the Courtney's timeline. Agnes was alive and well at the grocery store sometime that morning. Barbara Park says that she spoke to her at around 10 a.m., but Debbie says that her mom was home just after 10. Without a receipt, we can't nail this time down. So we're left with Agnes was alive sometime in the morning around 10. And we also know that both the Courtney's were dead by 5.30 p.m. when the police arrived on scene. And that's it. That's the window of opportunity based on the police records. The Courtney's were killed sometime between about 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. (music) Fortunately, we have some pretty sharp listeners paying a lot closer attention than the original investigating officers were. As I said, I believe going into this that the time of death was likely sometime after noon. I've landed on the hypothesis based on the stomach contents and what I feel is an overwhelming amount of evidence that Agnes was in bed napping when she was attacked. But listener Kimberly Ann Dinger has taken us a step further. Kimberly noticed that in Agnes' autopsy report, Dr. Birwani noted fixed posterior lividity. Now, I know that we've covered this before, but as a quick refresher, lividity is the process of blood settling to the lowest point on a body after a person dies. It's visible to the naked eye after a couple hours as purplish discoloration of the skin. For the first six hours or so, lividity can shift meaning that if you die lying on your stomach, within a few hours, the front of your body would turn purple because of the blood pooling. But if someone flipped your body over, gravity would shift the lividity onto your back. But that can only happen for a short period of time before the lividity becomes fixed. The blood vessels eventually break down and the skin discoloration becomes permanent, regardless of how a body is moved after that point. So what's important here? is the amount of time that Agnes spent face down before she was flipped onto her back to be transported to the morgue. Agnes's body was found face down in the bedroom. From the moment she was killed, the lividity clock began ticking. There's a range of time that it takes for lividity to fully fix. Research shows that the earliest fixation can happen at around six hours and at the very longest, 12 hours. Assuming, of course, that the body wasn't frozen or exposed to extreme heat. What we know for certain is the fact that Agnes' body was removed from the scene before lividity had a chance to fix on her anterior side, or her front. But, when was her body moved? Well, unfortunately, we don't know. I have not been able to find any EMS reports, coroner's reports, or ME reports from the scene indicating when her body was removed. But fortunately, thanks to Kimberly, we now have a window of time that completely changes the way that we should be looking at this investigation. Kimberly noticed in the crime scene video that there's an alarm clock in the bedroom where Agnes was found. As the camera passes by the clock, it reads 11.50 PM. And at that point, Agnes' body was still face down on the floor. Since we can't just assume the clock was set to the correct time, I then did a little more digging. Sure enough, 10 minutes before we see the alarm clock in the video, the camera panned past the microwave in the kitchen. The time on the microwave clock was 11.40 p.m. So, the clock in the bedroom was accurate. Which means that we now know with a surety that Agnes' body was still in a prone position at 11.50 p.m. Thanks to the autopsy report, we also know that the lividity had not yet fixed at that point. Based on the crime scene investigator Patrick Gass's testimony, we can push that time back even further. He testified that he took the majority of his crime scene photos after the video was shot, and also that nothing on the scene was disturbed until after he was done. Even if we assume that gas was moving very quickly as he documented the scene, I think it's more than fair to say that at least another hour passed by before Agnes's body was finally moved. Which means that we now know that at 1 a.m., lividity had yet to fix. So, what does this do for our timeline? If we take the extreme far end of the window of time it takes for levidity to fix, 12 hours, That would mean that Agnes Courtney was killed no earlier than 1 p.m. That time is very, very important to this investigation. The Courtney's neighbor across the street, Mabel Zabo, testified that she returned home from the Y to watch Bonanza at noon that day. And that when she returned, Deborah Perringer was gone from the scene. She also testified that she saw Debbie heading out to her car at 10.15 a.m., but to be fair, she didn't actually see her get in the car and drive away at that point. She only saw her walking to the car. So we can't say that Debbie actually left at 10.15. But Mabel is very confident that Debbie was in fact gone when she returned home at noon. At trial, she testified that she knew it was noon when she came home because Bonanza starts at noon. She mentioned that at that time, which was two years prior... Bonanza would air back-to-back episodes at 12 and 1. But nothing gets by you listeners. Listener Elizabeth Beck took the time to look up the TV guide from November 2, 2001. Sure enough, Mabel was wrong. There was no double showing of Bonanza that day. The show aired one time at 1 p.m., not noon. Which would mean that we really don't know if Debbie was gone at noon. We just know that she had definitely left by 1 p.m. This was a great catch, and because of it, I dug into the police files to find Mrs. Zabo's original 2001 interview. The trial occurred two years after the murders, so it makes sense that she might mix up some details after that amount of time had passed. So, I wanted to see what she had to say at the time of the murders. Mabel Zaba was interviewed by a Detective Hardy on November 7th, 2001, just five days after the murders. And there was no back-to-back episodes of Bonanza in this statement. But she does confirm that Debbie was gone at noon. This is what she told Detective Hardy. Quote, I know I was in the swimming pool at 5, 6, or 7 minutes after 11, and I was home by 12, and uh, I cooked my dog chicken. I don't want anybody to know that, but anyway, I do. And I prepared the dog food, washed all my vegetables, cleaned in the kitchen, and watched Bonanza that comes on at 1. The state has a big problem here. Or at least they would have if anyone had bothered to really look into the time of death. Based on the stomach contents, it seems that the Courtney's were still alive around lunchtime at least. Based on the lividity evidence, we can be almost certain that Agnes was still alive at 1 p.m. And based on Mabel Zabo's statement to police just days after the murders, Debbie Perringer was long gone from the scene by noon. And then to add to that problem, in this early interview, Mabel seems pretty damn certain that Debbie had left hours before that, around 10.15 a.m., Mabel told Detective Hardy that she saw Debbie walking towards her car at around 10.15. She was in her kitchen doing dishes at the time. Moments later, Mabel walked outside to get in her car to head to the Y. Debbie was parked on the street right behind Lloyd. These are Mrs. Zabo's exact words about Debbie's car from that 2001 interview. Quote, when I backed out of the drive, I had to be very careful not to hit Smitty's car. And I just remembered... It was gone. I think it was gone. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Fort Worth PD's suspicion of Debbie Peringer was in no way unwarranted. She was known to have been at the scene on the day of the murders, and a fair amount of forensic evidence points in her direction. At trial, the state called three different DNA analysts to the stand to break down the forensic evidence. First up was Sunday Lopez. Ms. Lopez was employed as a forensic scientist at the Fort Worth Police Crime Lab. Her job at the time of trial was to screen items of evidence for body fluids. In this case, her job was to perform presumptive confirmatory tests on items that the investigating officers believed were blood. During her testimony, the state entered in several items as evidence that had been collected by the crime scene unit. Included were blood samples from the lid of the trash can, the caller ID box, the mirror on the door to the bedroom where Agnes was killed, and the trim to that same door, the cabinet doors and drawers from the kitchen, and a bloody finger mark found on the dining room table. After Lopez's testimony, a scientist named Elise Watts also testified that she completed some of the presumptive testing for blood as well. Both of their testimonies were pretty short and sweet, and Bayes chose not to cross-examine either one of them. There were a few other samples admitted, but these were the important ones. All of these items tested positive as blood and were sent to the lab for DNA testing. Jamie King was the forensic analyst whose job it was to obtain DNA profiles from the evidence submitted to the Orchid Cellmark Lab in Dallas. He testified following Dr. Pirwani. 81 samples in total were tested and compared to Lloyd and Agnes, their adopted daughter Brenda, her fiancé James, Debbie, and Debbie's husband Paul. Most of the samples came back as a match to either Lloyd or Agnes, and none of the samples matched Brenda, James, or Paul. But it's King's testimony that we, and the jury, find out that several of the blood samples matched the defendant, Deborah Peringer. First up is a blood sample that was taken from what looks like a finger mark on the dining room table. DNA testing revealed that that was Debbie's blood. Next up, the blood swab from the caller ID box matched her, Then the swab from the trash can lid. And the same with the blood found on the door trim and the mirror on the door to the bedroom where Agnes was found. And then lastly, Debbie's blood was found on the face of a drawer in the kitchen. That short bit of testimony pretty much sealed Deborah Perringer's fate. No one bothered to pay any attention to detail on this crime scene. The police investigators viewed Debbie's blood on the scene as a slam dunk case. And so did the prosecutor. And to their credit, so did the jury. But let me give you the other side of the story. We're going to eventually dig deep into the investigation into Debbie as well as her testimony. But for now, this is the Reader's Digest version of her explanation of her blood being on the scene. There's no question that she was at the Courtney's house that morning. That fact is undisputed by both parties and confirmed by the Zabos across the street. According to Debbie, she had cut her finger while doing dishes at her house the day before the murders. When she was at her parents' house, she says she was dusting for them, and while she was dusting, she says that she began bleeding through her bandage. She claims that she stood in the doorway to the bedroom talking to her father while he was working on the computer and basically explains her movements that accounted for all of the blood on the scene, except for the caller ID box. She says that she doesn't know how her blood got there. So, our question comes down to whether Debbie is extremely unlucky and her parents happen to be brutally murdered on the same day that she bled all over their house, or she murdered her parents. To be honest, the first time that I read about Debbie's excuse for her blood being on the scene, I didn't believe it. It just seemed way too convenient. What are the odds that she happened to be bleeding in the house on that very day? just seemed unlikely. But it also seems unlikely that none of her DNA would be found on or near either of the bodies. These attacks were horrific, up close and personal. Surely the killer would leave evidence behind on the bodies. And as it turns out, someone may have. During the cross-examination of Jamie King, Bays only asked about one thing the caller ID box. The box is the only place where Debbie can't explain how her blood ended up there. She says that she never touched it that day. Under the cross-examination of King, we discover that her DNA that was found in the box may not have been from her blood at all. It could have been from skin cells from a previous visit. Now, to make sure that we're all on the same page, it's important that I point out that this caller ID box was not in a common area of the house. It was located in the back bedroom on the computer desk that was in the back corner of that bedroom. King testifies during cross that he discovered two profiles on the caller ID. The swab was taken from what was described as a very small blood stain. Within that swab, King found Deborah Perringer's DNA and the DNA of an unknown person. King explained on the stand that he had no way of distinguishing if both profiles were the result of two different people bleeding on the box, or if one profile came from the blood, and the other from skin cells or some other source. All he knows is that there were two DNA profiles found, and that one was Debbie's, and one belonged to someone else. This finding opens up a lot of new questions. The most obvious one, of course, being... Who was in the Courtney's bedroom touching their caller ID? If we can circle back to the forensic scientist Sunday Lopez's testimony for a moment, we also find that there was a hair found underneath Agnes's wedding ring. We never hear about the DNA results of this hair at trial, but I looked it up at the DNA reports. The reports state that the testing of the hair was inconclusive the analyst was not able to pull enough DNA from the hair to develop a full profile. And when I went to the crime scene photos to see the hair, there were a couple things that jumped out at me. The first thing that I noticed was that Agnes' wedding ring was turned around on her finger. The diamond was on the palm side. That probably means nothing, but I think it's worth mentioning. And secondly, the hair found on her ring was not the only hair of interest. Stuck to Agnes' thumb with blood on her right hand was another hair. And in the photo, it appears to be longer and light. It's hard to tell if it's blonde or gray, but it is most certainly not Debbie's hair. At the time, her hair was cut very short and it was brown. After seeing the hair in the photos, I went back to the DNA reports and the evidence collection logs. The hair was photographed but it does not appear to have been collected as evidence. As we dredge through the trial testimony, it continues to become more and more apparent that the investigating officers had their minds made up that Debbie was their killer. As I've stated, I can absolutely understand given the DNA evidence why they had their sights set on her. But that's no excuse to move through the rest of the investigation with blinders on. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. When Mabel Zabo talked to police a few days after the murders, she told them about something strange that had happened at the Courtney's the day before the murders. For years, Agnes and Lloyd had their nephew take care of their lawn. He mowed for them about once a week. But on the morning before the murders, a group of men pulled up their house and began mowing the lawn at 7.30 a.m. There were two things concerning about this event. Number one, These men were not contracted to mow the lawn. Number two, they were mowing before 8 a.m., which was actually illegal in Fort Worth at the time, something any professional lawn service would be very well aware of. Mabel stated that it didn't take long before Smitty came out of the house and confronted the men in his yard. She couldn't hear what was said, but she watched the men get into their vehicles and drive away. She assumed that they had just gone to the wrong house, but she didn't say that they moved over to a neighbor's yard just that they drove away. The mysterious lawnmowers fall more into the category of things that make you go, hmm, than into the murder-suspect category, but again, I think it's worth noting. But the confused landscaper's incident pales in comparison to the testimony of another neighbor of the Courtney's, Dr. Maria Abalos. Dr. Abalos lived at 4936 Rutland Avenue her backyard butted up to the backyard of the Courtney's. Now remember back to episode one, when I told you that the Zabos reported hearing a dog barking in the afternoon of the murders. Well, as it turns out, they were hearing Maria's dog. Dr. Abelos worked nights at an animal medical clinic as a vet. Let me read to you part of the police report generated by the officer that interviewed her during the door-to-door canvassing on the evening of the murders. Dr. Abelos advised that she was home all day basically sleeping. When she was asked if she heard or saw anything out of the ordinary today, she stated yes. Dr. Abelos stated that she has two big dogs that normally bark at anyone coming by the house. However, there was something different today. Dr. Abelos, a veterinarian, stated that her dog Ferris was barking in such a violent manner that she thought something was wrong. Dr. Abelos stated that her dog's bark was definitely different. Both of her dogs were in the backyard, which is behind the call location. Dr. Abelos stated that she attempted to calm down her dog and was unsuccessful. At this point, she recalls seeing the female that lives at 4941 Stadium hanging clothes. Dr. Abelos stated that she then went back to bed. Dr. Avalos then stated that she was awakened a second time by the dogs again, and she still feared something was wrong. Dr. Avalos stated that the dogs do not normally bark in an aggressive manner towards the people that live behind her, so she got up to check again. Her dog Dakota was chained to her patio area. However, her dog Ferris, a black Labrador, was loose in the yard and was next to the fence that abuts to 4945 Stadium Drive. Dr. Avalos stated that she walked halfway into her yard because her dog Ferris was not obeying when she observed an unknown man in the yard that belongs to Mr. Courtney. Dr. Avalos stated that the man was walking from the windows just south of the door in the backyard approaching her fence. Dr. Avalos stated that she believes the man was yelling at her dog. However, she does not recall him ever saying anything to her. Dr. Avalos first stated that she believed this happened between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Dr. Abalos went on to provide a description that was later made into a composite sketch. She said that the person in the Courtney's backyard on the day of the murders was a white male, tall, possibly six foot three or six 6'4, 20 to 35 years old, muscular, and probably around 200 pounds. The man had a long, clean-shaven face and short, dark hair, and he was wearing blue coveralls. Then later during the interview, Maria went in to check her caller ID box. She remembered that there were calls both before and after she saw the man. After checking the ID, the report says, quote, She is certain that she saw this man in the Courtney's yard between 10.30 a.m. and 1 p.m. If the mysterious lawnmowers make you go, hmm, then a strange man in the Courtney's backyard just before the murders occurred really ought to make you go, are you fucking serious? How did the police not focus on this man? I can tell you how. Once the DNA results came in, it appears as though all focus shifted to Debbie. Any evidence that didn't fit the working theory was ignored. Despite the fact that a close look at the crime scene and evidence provides a hell of a lot of reasons to doubt Debbie's culpability, the police were so caught up in their big picture theory that Debbie must be the killer that they failed to pay attention to the details details that point in a different direction. As I was concluding my research for this episode, I was taking another look at the alarm clock in the bedroom where Agnes was found. And I caught something that I hadn't noticed before. On the nightstand, right next to the alarm clock, were a pair of glasses. To me, they looked like women's glasses, so I took a look at some unredacted photos. And Agnes was not wearing glasses when she was killed. My assumption was that the glasses must belong to Mrs. Courtney, but I wanted to be sure. So I went back to the crime scene video where the cameraman zoomed in on Agnes's driver's license. And sure enough, there's Agnes in the photo wearing the exact same pair of glasses that had been set down on the nightstand. Then I noticed that her driver's license says that Agnes has but one restriction, listed as Restriction A. A quick Google search revealed that restriction A means that Agnes cannot drive without her glasses. It's a corrective lens restriction. There is no question in my mind whatsoever that Agnes was asleep in her bedroom when she was attacked. And I am astonished that the investigating officers missed all of this. The bed sheets turned up, the top of the bed made, but another pillow on the bottom... The banana in Lloyd's stomach, the shifting lividity, and for God's sakes, the glasses. Agnes had to have been wearing them when she drove home from the market. The state's theory is that she walked in on Smitty's murder, dropped the groceries on the floor, and retreated to the bedroom as Debbie chased her with a frying pan. And then, what? Got to the bedroom, took off her glasses, placed them on the nightstand, removed her shoes, turned up the comforter, grabbed a pillow from the closet, and laid down to be murdered? Knowing what we know now, this theory is absolutely absurd. The fact is that Debbie had left the house before noon. The murders couldn't have occurred before 1 p.m., and there was a strange guy creeping around the Courtney's backyard just before they were killed. You know, there's an old expression that I oftentimes get accused of. I tend to be so detail-oriented that i've heard many times throughout my life that i tend to miss the forest for the trees meaning that i can get so focused in on details that i might not always see the big picture in front of me that may be true but what we're seeing here in the investigation into the murders of lloyd and agnes courtney is the exact opposite phenomenon the fort worth police department and the tarrant county da's office missed the trees for the forest and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed and scored by PutThemInASong.com who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing and maintaining our website TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay wood Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at Pod. And I personally can be found on social media at Truth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.